Hello and welcome to Joe's Boys. This is a podcast for little women, little men, and everyone in between. I'm your host, Hayden Thomas. I'm the author of the novel Both Sides Now. I'm also a writer for publications like Pitchfork, Billboard, and Vanity Fair. And I'm here today with my very special guest, Alex Marzano Lesnovich. Alex is the author of the book slash cultural phenomenon, The Fact of a Body, a Murder, and a Memoir which won several awards, including the Lambda Literary Award, and was named one of the best books of the year by Entertainment Weekly, The Times of London, The Guardian, and about a million other places. Alex earned their BA from Columbia, their MFA at Emerson College, and their JD at Harvard Law School. They're now an assistant professor at Bowdoin College, and their next book, Both and Neither, is forthcoming from Doubleday. Alex, welcome to the show. How are you? I am quite good, Kate, thank you so much for having me. I love the title even of this podcast. I've loved the episodes I've heard, but also when you emailed, I was like, oh my God, Joe's boys, I've been waiting since fourth grade to be on this podcast. This is great. <laughs> you know, those long years of preparation for this podcast, it all comes down to this. It's no pressure. <laughs> so Alex, I have two questions. First of all, did I pronounce Bodoin right? <laughs> no, it's Bowdoin. Bowdoin. All right. Yeah. Bowdoin College and your next book, Both and Neither. I would love to hear what that's all about. I'm calling it a transgender and trans genre book about life beyond the binary. Gender and genre, of course, come from the same root word, meaning of a type or of a kind. So I wanted to tell a transgender story by certainly complicating the genre of matters. It kind of interweaves some memoir because I grew up with a twin brother and that was sort of sorted very neatly, perhaps when we were little or at least everyone else thought it was. And then that got more complicated as I transitioned. And the memoir of coming of age in that way, but then it's also kind of a cultural history of the gender binary in Western cultures, because people often think that's real, think it's really old. And of course, it's actually really new that it got sort of solidified into this binary kind of thinking. So I go on this cross-cultural road trip to different places where in the past people transgender in different ways in different times, and several historical figures from the past come to imagine life in the present and join me. So... One way to think about this is that the side of the genre is actually haunted nonfiction because it's not a lot of time hanging out with ghosts. And the (laughs) other way of understanding this is that it is all an elaborate excuse, a book length, elaborate excuse to go drinking at a trans bar in Paris that's called the Mutiny with the French artist Claude Cahun, who is, of course, very dead. But I was there and I was having this moment where I was like, oh, wow, if I were here with Claude, we'd be arguing and I know what we'd be arguing about. And I was like, all right, well, maybe I'm going to make a book about it. So that sounds fascinating, one. And two, I mean, is a certain ghost of Lou Alcott going to be popping up along the way? Lou Alcott is not currently in the book. Okay. But I look forward to many conversations around all the figures who are not in the book and should be, because I think we still have this narrative that this was rare and unusual, right? Even when I'm writing about someone named Joseph Lobdell and when a piece about him was published. It was published as the first American medical piece about a lesbian, which of course Joe is not, but, no. but was considered such a rare phenomenon. The piece was called a, a case of sexual perversion. It was like, this is the only such person ever documented. <laughs> and even a piece I was reading today was like cataloging all these doctors saying in the late 1800s. Oh, well, maybe there are like 20 people who've ever existed like this in history, <laughs> right? <laughs> it's like, oh, well, y'all got that a little wrong. So all this to say, Lou is not, but 
I am hoping that I get to have a lot of conversations like this around the book about who's not in it, because you can only fit a certain number of people in a book. I had this pivotal moment with my fabulous editor maybe a year ago after I read a wonderful book by Leah Devon called The Shape of Sex. That's about the Middle Ages, mostly. And I called him and you know, contacted my editor and was like, bad news, I'm adding the Middle Ages. And the editor was like, oh my God, Alec, constrain, constrain, constrain. So anyway, not everyone's going to be in it. Only four people are going to come to life. I love it. I'm so excited for this. It sounds like, I mean, I endorse you just adding a one to it. I endorse this being the second trans infinite jest because the first one that's already <laughs> trans. But this is so cool. So, I mean, I have to ask now, what's your relationship to Little Women? Read it in fourth grade. We had this fabulous deal where if we were reading and we could just take the test for the unit, whatever it was in, like math or whatever, and could sit out from the unit if we like did okay on the test before actually taking the unit class. And we could just read quiet time. And so I became highly motivated to like read ahead in the textbook. I was such a little nerd because all I really wanted was quiet reading time because I have a lot of siblings and I love my siblings, but home was loud. And so that beanbag chair, fourth grade, found Little Woman on the Shelf, devoured it, wanted to be Joe. Well, wanted to, you know, it's that classic doobie doobie doo queer problem. Wanted to either be Joe or had a giant crush on Joe. Don't know which one it was. <laughs> and then went on to read Little Man and Joe's Boys and kind of loved it. Always felt alienated from a lot of it, but felt this strong identification with elements of it. That is a classic story. I'm not surprised that you were in the doobie-doo paradox with Joe. I think many of our listeners <laughs> are. <laughs> and so you've already answered my second question, which is, which March sister are you? Do you want to speak any more about your Jonas? As a kid, you know, right down to the name, right? Because I had a longer birth name and I just wanted to be called Alex all the time. And just even seeing Joe's, I assume, I forget if we ever learned whether it's truncated or not, but and certainly the truncated name and just going by that. And the idea, man, Joe has so many lines that are like, you could read this one way or the other, and it opens up a lot of space, right? And I was yes. always searching for characters who opened up that space. No, of course. I think there are many more characters like that in children's literature than we would maybe acknowledge. Alcott is certainly my, my number one, but so many of our classics like Frog and Toad, George and Martha, Anne of Green Gables, all of Tommy de Paola. There's such a history of queerness in children's literature that I don't think we've discussed. Well, we discuss it a lot on this show anyway. Yeah, I don't think we discuss it at all. And there was the story of X by Lewis Gold. Like that was the one that made a big impact on me as a kid. I don't know. Do you know that story? No, no. Okay, it was a short story originally published in, I want to say it was published in Ms. Magazine. It might have been somewhere else. And there was a baby named X whose parents decided they would not tell anyone whether X was a girl or a boy. Right, and this right. is a story that was published. Again, I'm going to make this up. It's certainly been decades, right? It, it was already okay. an old story when I was a child. It was in this little anthology and I couldn't yet read. And my folks did never read that story to me. They read other stories in the anthology. But when I could read, I like went back to the anthology and I just turned to the wrong page or something one day, you know, I just read a story I wasn't supposed to. And I remember a feeling white hot in that way that was like, don't let your parents know that you've read this story, but yeah. definitely save it and come back to it all the time. And the kid is known as X. No one knows whether it's her boy or girl. 
the town freaks out and demands to know, except the other children are all on board. They're like, they're fine. But they're like, we don't need to know. And when the child comes of age, the parents give the child a choice. How do you want to be known? Do you want to be known as a boy or a girl? And the child says, I'm good with X. I just want to be X. And I just thought that was great as a kid. I was like, that. <laughs> so, I mean, I think there are a lot of these. And it's really surprised me that that story didn't get too much attention in like the modern rebirth. I kind of want to put together an anthology that talks about it maybe someday. Yeah, I'd love to read that. Yeah, I just feel like there, there are all the, yeah, as you said, there are all these stories out there that open up this space. And then every time we're like, no, there aren't. This is totally new. This is totally rare. And then you're like, it's like history. You look at history and you're like, how are there so many queer people? And you just somehow erased them all or pretended there weren't or forgot about them or what have you. Why the massive cultural cover-up? So yeah, there's a lot. That's what we're investigating today, Bang's gavel. So I'm glad you're here today because this is an extraordinarily trans chapter. But your first book was getting to the heart of a mystery. And we have a mystery in this chapter. We have dueling perspectives, dueling stories. And I would love your help in cracking the case. So would you like to describe, recap for us what happens in chapter 21, Lori makes mischief and Joe makes peace? Yes. So Lori does make mischief. <laughs> Rory makes a big, bold plot move here. I think anyone who knows the fiction writer and Charles Baxter may know that Baxter has this theory of stories where a character has to be the Captain Happen who does something that like prompts the story to unfold. And Lori here yeah. is definitely the Captain Happen. So <laughs> Joe thinks that she's found a love letter from John Brooke to Meg. And she says to Meg, she's got most of the symptoms, meaning like symptoms of love. She's twittery and cross. She doesn't eat. She mopes in corners. And Lori brings in mail, I think, and finds her a note she Meg all sealed up. And I love that Joe comments how weird it is that the letter is sealed up because Lori never seals letters to Joe. Oh, I wonder what's up, right? <laughs> so Meg reads the letter, gets very upset. And we learn that she thought that a love letter that was from John Brooke, actually not from John Brooke, right? And she pulls the letter out of her pocket. It's very dramatic. It's crumpled. She's been carrying it around. And Meg gives kind of this heartbreaking little soliloquy where in talking about how she felt about having this letter, she's like, I felt like the girls in books, right? She feels like the girls in romantic books who like have something to do with their heart and think about the future. And of course, she assures her mother that when she wrote to John Brooke in response to what she thought was this letter from him, she told John that she wasn't available for more years until she grows up and she didn't want anything to happen. But heartbreakingly, what we have learned with this new letter, which at the time we think is from John Brooke, that John knew nothing of the original letter, knew nothing of the love letter, didn't write the love letter. And so Meg feels like a fool, which is really quite sad, but it turns out that Laurie has written both of them. Mr. Making Captain Happen, Lori. And Joe is the one who realizes this. They all forgive Lori because Lori displays such consternation and is so sorry and recognizes the mischief making ways, except Joe. Joe remains sort of purest of heart, but then Lori looks so chagrined that Joe wishes she had and goes to talk to Lori, but Lori has been intercepted by the grandfather. So much going on in this chapter. Everybody's got a secret because Lori will not tell the grandfather why Mrs. March was so mad at her. And so layers and layers of secrets. 
it. And then Lori is quite upset. Joe comes to see him and tries to reassure him. And one of the things she says is, well, if I were a boy, we'd run away together and have a capital time. But (laughs) as I'm just a miserable girl, I cannot do such a thing, right? So instead, she does the girl movement. She goes and talks to Lori's grandfather, trying to get him to sort of ease up on Lori, telling him that the reason that Lori wouldn't say why he was in trouble was, in fact, that he was keeping his word not to say it because nobody wants anything to get back to John Brooke. So much intrigue, right? Yes. And these four kids are like wrapped up in the intrigue. Kids and teenagers (laughs) wrapped up in massive intrigue. So the grandfather writes an apology to Lori. And I thought this was quite the move. It is such a kid fantasy come true that the adults are going to write a formal apology for doubting the kid, right? For doubting, yeah. So in the end, everything's okay. And we're told by the narration that everyone will forget about all this. Except for Meg. Poor Meg. Who still is going to like, at one point, Joe later... We'll find a scrap of paper in which Meg has written her name as Mrs. Brooks. And it's so tragic. I mean, we know later on, right? We have the benefit of knowing more than the characters know. And so we know it's all going to be okay eventually. But what emotion, what heartbreak, what queer drama. Yes. In fact, Joe finds a bit of paper scribbled over with the words, Mrs. John Brooke, whereat she groaned tragically and cast it into the fire. It's, he doesn't even think she's just like, bye. <laughs> Wonderful recap, Alex. I think you're touching on so much here. The very first, I don't know if you've read any of Alcott's pseudonymous adult fiction. I haven't. She wrote all these mysteries under the pseudonym A.M. Barnard, and they were so often about someone pushed into a marriage that wasn't a love match and really being in love with someone else and intrigue and cross signals and letters in the wrong places. It's, so it really reminds, she's really bringing her skills in the, the melodrama for adults here. I definitely see in, the, <laughs> in all of this intrigue, that's very much the case. Now, but you didn't touch on the mystery that I want to unwrap because we have, oh. it's, it's very interesting here. Two characters give different accounts of the same event. So when Joe comes to see Lori, she says, could I ask what's the matter? You don't look exactly easy in your mind. And Lori says, I've been shaken and I won't bear it. He's saying that his grandfather shook him, right? Like physically grabbed Mm -hmm. him by the shoulders and shook him. And then later on, when Joe goes to confront the grandfather, he says, what has that boy been about? I can't get a word from him. And when I threatened to shake the truth out of him, he bolted upstairs and locked himself into his room. Oh, that mystery. Okay. I did not take that much note of that distinction, but you're right. There's like a huge gap there. Yes. So Lori claims grandpa shook me and grandfather says, when I threatened to shake him, he just bolted. So, I mean, who do we believe here? Oh, that's a good question. I want you for the character's sake, believe the grandfather. Because I don't want Lori to have been physically shaken. I don't either. <laughs> but also he feels the threat and that's enough. I think I, yeah. I didn't take too much heat on that because I understood his shaking to be emotional, not necessarily <laughs> physical. And right. so the threat of the physical shaking could certainly cause the emotional shaken up. Everybody's upset here. Everybody's upset. Yes. Yeah. Who do you believe? I'm inclined to believe Lori and I will make my case as to why. Because later on he says... If that harem scarum boy of mine has done anything ungrateful or impertinent after all your kindness to him, I'll thrash him with my own hands. So he does make, he, ma- he makes another threat being getting physical with Lori. But then later on, Joe actually comes out and sort of 
says he feels badly because you didn't believe him when he said he couldn't tell. I think the shaking hurt his feelings very much. And then grandpa doesn't deny it. He says, I ought to thank him for not shaking me. So it seems that Joe has her own idea of the crime. <laughs> she has her own theory of what happened. She believes Laura and she just, she said, I don't think you threatened. I think you did shake him. Hey, I got to say, that was some fabulous lawyering right there. This is my, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> grandpa Laura on the stand. Well parsed out. Yep. All yeah. right. Well, so perhaps you've got a darker read going on. Yeah, because this chapter, it does get, it starts in this, Meg is upset, but ultimately Lori planting a love letter. That's kind of sweet, right? It's, <laughs> is that it feels so malicious? Do you think it's malicious? I mean, I, I don't think Lori necessarily understood the emotional ramifications sure. of his actions, like at all. But I personally wouldn't find like the planting of a love letter sweet. It seems far more... Sure emotionally manipulative like crazy <laughs> and just oh here's this girl with strong emotions well let me mess around with it and she'll feel humiliated but that doesn't really register as consequence okay see i take it as Lori is really invested in the notion of john brooke and meg getting together and he wants to meddle a little he wants to play cupid and like you said i don't think he realizes the emotional ramifications of that or just how grave the consequences will be I don't see the intention as malicious, although he's certainly like Meg is really put out by this. She's like, I don't want to have anything to do with lovers for a long time, perhaps never. And that's something that Joe might say that we're not used to hearing that from Meg. Right. But then wait, but then the second letter is also written by Lori. Yeah. Lori, Lori's been a prankster. Yeah. It says Teddy wrote both. I don't believe Brooks ever saw either of those letters. Teddy wrote both. (laughs) And it's the second one. Like I could see the positive meddling. Of the first, yes. it's like maybe these two just need a little nudge to be lovebirds, right? Right. But the second one is kind of brutal. The second letter is, he writes in a different way entirely, telling me that he never sent any love letter at all and is very sorry that my roguish sister, Joe, should take liberties with our names. It's very right. kind of respectful, but thank God dreadful for me. And so that was also from Lori. That was so also what? from Lori. And Joe realizes yeah. that by looking at both of them. So that's why the second one, I'm like, I don't know that there's such a great read on that second one other than fucking with everybody or realizing he made a mistake and trying to walk it back and blame it on joe (laughs) Mm -hmm. like can you believe joe would do something (laughs) which you had to know that wasn't gonna i mean this well the young man may not have thought through the consequences of his actions i don't think so but he does seem like he's having a decent time up until he gets caught Yes. I think, well, in a gendered way, I read this as Joe really wants nothing to do with love. She sees the slip of paper that says Mrs. John Brooks. She throws it into the fire. She's like, we cannot be having this. You know, and then Lori, by contrast, is like, I'm Cupid. I'm the matchmaker. I'm going to make this happen. And I might hurt some feelings along the way, which is not my intention. And then Marmy calls him into her office for half an hour. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but he confesses pretty quick. I mean, he, he confess. well, he doesn't confess. He, he gets called out as soon as anyone sees his face. Yes. Right? Joe yeah. takes one look at his face and is like, oh, yeah, he did it. Oh. Yeah. What does it say? Joe is burning to execute immediate justice. <laughs> <laughs> when he's in the room with Marmy, Joe was dismissed, but chose to march up and down the hall like a sentinel, <laughs> having some fear that the prisoner might fall. <laughs> And then when she sees him again, right, seeing that he really was out of temper, Joe, who you had imagined him, assumed a contrite expression and going artistically down on her knees. <laughs> so I think we can agree that there's a lot of love of, dra- of drama and metal drama going on amongst everyone in this. 
Yes. Including grandfather. Who's including constant thrash thrash threat. Yeah, which, I mean, that's upsetting to read about. I'm not the biggest fan of Grandpa. I think it's remarkable that Joe sort of gets through to him. And that has a lot to do with the Alcott's attitude toward no corporal punishment for children. They were pretty strident about that. And I see that pretty plainly expressed here. And actually, maybe some of the Rashomon (laughs) around whether the shaking took place is maybe due to not wanting to make the story too dark for children to like sort of hint that maybe this happened, but it might make Grandpa fully irredeemable if there was no question that he had done it. No, it's interesting. Also, when Lori asks for Meg's forgiveness, she says, I'll try, but it was a very ungentlemanly thing to do, replied Meg, trying to hide her maidenly confusion, which is gender (laughs) and gender. (laughs) I love that maidenly confusion. Yeah. Maidenly confusion. Yeah. And for God's sakes, Lori seems pretty confused by how things are going and what consequences will happen and who is feeling like what. But no, no, confusion must be maidenly. Yeah. Which is why I think it was... I think he genuinely thought he was doing a good thing here. I think he thought, I'm going to play Cupid. It didn't work out the way I wanted. I'm just going to cover my ass. And then it's only kind of when Meg is sobbing and Marmy is staring him down. He's like, oh, no. It did not go according to plan. But he does very readily just throw Joe under the bus with it. Which is maybe why Joe, maybe that's why Joe marches up and down the hall like a sentinel while he's getting reamed out and stands aloof trying to harden her heart against him. Because it's not just... He didn't just injure Meg. He implicated Joe in it falsely and her honor. He attempt, attempted to, but certainly everybody said it. I mean, at first, Marmy suspects Joe, but she gives up on it right. pretty quickly. Yeah. Joe's like, why? I don't, I hate John Brooks. Why would I <laughs> And then yet, it's still upset to see Laurie upset that she must go down on her knees artistically. Yes. And make her claim. I, I appreciate how much she is just trying to have everyone behave the way she needs them to. Everyone's really trying to orchestrate the others here in some fashion. Yes. And I don't, really the only successful interaction is when, well, not the only, I think Marmy is able to get through to Lori and then Joe is able to get through to Graham. Lori is very upset. Lori almost sells her on running away from home. And we'll get to that in a second. <laughs> <laughs> but she does get through to Grandpa Lawrence. She gets him to write a letter of apology. As you were saying, it's a kid fantasy that the adults eat crow like that. <laughs> but a lot of this is about miscommunication and failing to do right by one another, which is why it's so interesting that the chapter sort of revolves around these two great moments of knitting back together in a way. Of, of knitting back together of the social relations of just yeah, like, exactly. okay, yes, we're going to have an apology. We're going to have a redemption moment. Yes. Every, I mean, it's quite a lot of drama and sprinkling and splintering resolved quite quickly. In just yes. a couple of pages. And Joe to go from so curious at Lori to literally on her knees yes. pleading with him to come around is abrupt. That's pretty much instant. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. And then meanwhile, we get, as you said, these threats of the running away. And Joe, I often think I should like to, especially since my hair was cut. <laughs> yeah, she. so Lori hatches this plot to run away. Mm-hmm. She says he's looking at a map of the railroad in that scene. He's bent over a railroad map. Like he's serious. He's figuring out how we make this happen. And, now, and Joe says, Teddy, be sensible. Let it pass. He says, no, I'm going to slip off and take a journey somewhere. And, oh, it's so he, hold on. Lori says, I'll go to Washington. It's getting there and I'll enjoy myself after the troubles. 
And Joe says, what fun you, Joe has been scolding him and being like, don't run away. And as soon as he makes the suggestions, he's like, what fun you'd have. I wish I could run off too. Like she, (laughs) she insinuates herself into the plot, right? Forgetting her part of mentor and lively visions of martial life at the Capitol, which, so we, we already know that Joe wants to be a soldier. I'm not sure, even though Lou Alcott knew what lively visions of martial life actually awaited here, like Joe all of Joe's illusions are intact. She's like, I think it's going to be the most fun thing in the world <laughs> to go to Washington, D.C. She thinks about the novel charms of camps and hospitals. I'm like, I don't know how charming camps and hospitals are. <laughs> no. Well, then a couple, of two, a couple of pages later, she's got grand, she's saying to grandfather, you know, if you ever miss us, you may advertise for two boys and look among the ships bound for India. Got a lot of adventure in her heart. Yeah. And an understanding that the adventures are dependent on being a boy. Yes. (laughs) Yes. I never mentioned without pegging to that. Yeah. If she runs away, she's not going to do it as a girl. She's like, no, no. Advertise for two boys. Make no mistake. (laughs) I mean, if she ever runs away, not only is she not going to do it as a girl, she's not going to do it as a quote, quote, miserable girl. I'm a miserable girl. I must be proper and stop at home. Yeah. So yes, girl, miserable, proper, homebound. Boy, I don't know, the sea, a military hospital, camp, adventures, the railway, all this. Yeah. And if I may, there's a, a little aside that says Joe forgetting her part of mentor in these lively visions. So some translations don't capitalize mentor and just take it as she's trying to mentor Lori in this moment. But actually in the original transcript, it's capitalized and Mentor, as I learned, and this is from John Madison's but annotated Little Women, writes, in Homer's Odyssey, the goddess Athena assumes the human form of mentor, which is a male form. So this is another little Easter egg, is that it's a reference to a mythological woman goddess who becomes a man. <laughs> that is a beautiful Easter egg. That is amazing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. What an annotation. Okay. Yeah. It's on every level here. It's, a, it's truly staggering. And we get another, she says, don't tempt me, Teddy. It's a crazy plan. He says, that's the fun of it. Joe covers her ears and says, prunes and prisms are my doom. And I may as well make up my mind to it. The prunes and prisms is a specific reference to a Dickens novel where that phrase is shorthand for the propriety and politeness expected of young ladies. So it's another thing of like, yeah, I'm doomed to be a woman. Don't tempt me. <laughs> so it's fast. It's this running away plot with Lori. There's no reason this has to be about gender, but Joe takes it there right away. <laughs> Joe takes it there repeatedly. And then, right, wasn't, didn't the second part of Little Woman come out in the UK as Good Wives? Yes. I, I believe that was the title, right? So, like, we've got these hints of gender exploration and gender fuckery. And then it's just, nope, it's going to be Good Wives, including oh. Joe. <laughs> God. Which she hated, by the way. I want to read to you. This is a letter that Lou Alcott wrote to Alfie Whitman, who was her good friend and one of the inspirations for Lori. She had just gotten out of a governess gig and she's writing to Alfie Whitman and she says, I am done with my little treasure, the girl she'd been governessing for, and I'm now a gentleman at large and in want of a situation. So if anyone in Lawrence, that's a town, wants a governess companion or man of all work, I will come for a consideration. I came near going to Europe this spring, but those perverse old baggages the fates were against me, and I still pine for a foreign trip 
as I have done for the last 10 years. Let's you and I go as sailors and work our passage over <laughs> and travel on boats like Consuelo and Joseph Hayden all over Europe, having a nice time. Will you go? And that's a very, that's a specific literary reference. So it's, <laughs> so it's notable here to me that the let's run away together as boys, <laughs> because I'm a gentleman at large. <laughs> sail. That comes from an actual proposal that Alcott made to the, one of the real lorries. Oh, <laughs> and was that, that was before or after writing this? That was b- well before writing Little Women. Okay. She was still kind of doing gig work, the gig economy of the, of the 1800s, right? She's saying, you know, my, my contract is up. You know, if anyone has work, let me know. Or, <laughs> or I could disguise myself as a boy and we could go be sailors. What do you think? I mean, I think those are the two natural options. Really, there's nothing else in between. That's it. You got to go to the gender place if you're going to yeah. advertise for two boys. <laughs> <laughs> among the ships. And then at the end, when Joe kind of does smooth things over between Laurie and his grandfather, Laurie says, what a good fellow you are, Joe. And this is the fourth time in the book that Laurie calls Joe fellow. And while this was not exactly a gender neutral term, even at the time, we can say my fellow Americans are like my fellow women even. And that's correct usage. But it's far more, and it was in that day, it is far more a reference to someone who is a man or a boy. So it's notable that this is Laurie's nickname for Joe. This is something he likes to call Joe is my fellow. And in return, Joe says, Teddy, my son. (laughs) (laughs) So we get these very specific relations there. But there's that nice bit of identification where it's like the friend who can see you to some extent or see parts of who you are that (laughs) perhaps... You cannot articulate to others, but with the two of you, you will invent a world, make up a world that lets you be more fully who you are. And I love that, the relationship that they have. That feels, I mean, you're talking about like finding queer lineage in books, like that feels like a part of queer lineage, that kind of friendship. Even if it doesn't know what, how to articulate itself in that way yet, it's there. I think the queerness in this book finds plenty of ways to articulate itself and really plain, even for the day language. We talk a lot about queer subtext. I don't think this is subtext at all. (laughs) It's just text. It's saying, advertise for two boys. If I were a boy, we'd run away together and have a capital time. I mean, it's that kind of text that is so blatant that you wouldn't know that it goes back into subterfuge. Yes. Because it's so blatant that you wouldn't read it as being the obvious thing. Because if it were, it's if there were less, perhaps it would be read that way because it would be assumed that it would have to be an element of subterfuge. Yes. If you hear there's so much of it, you're like, no, it can't be. No, it just, it's just so overwhelming. There's one last thing in this chapter. Joe is saying, Lori, go and eat your dinner. You'll feel better after it. Men always croak when they are hungry. And Lori answers, that's a label on my set. He's joking. He's quoting Amy because Amy, as we know, loves Maltrop. So what he's actually saying in response, men always croak when they're hungry, is that's a libel on my set. He's objecting to Joe saying this about men, or he's objecting to Joe saying this about him, or he's saying, I'm not a man. <laughs> it's sort of one last little cherry on the Sunday of this chapter. She's like, men always do this. He's like, I resent that. <laughs> well, that's the thing. When we're talking about the GBDBD thing. Yes. I wonder if that's actually Lori towards Joe as well. Oh. Hell yeah. Lori's already picking up kind of Joe's behaviors and speech. Like he slides down the banister in this chapter, which is something that Joe does, that Catherine Hepburn famously does in 1930s Little Women, is just like look over her shoulder and then swoop down a banister. (laughs) 
So Joe and Lori get to kind of melt into one another for a time. And I think we're starting to see the seams there as even, I think there's an earlier version of Joe who would have run away with Lori. Who would have said- What do you feel like a shit thing? I don't know. Because in the first chapter, Meg says, you have to remember that you're a young lady. And Joe says, I'm not. (laughs) Joe says, I can't get over my disappointment in not being a boy. And has this tussle with Meg over whether she must be a young lady. And here, Joe has become her own Meg. Like she thinks Mm -hmm. about it and she's like, oh, I'm a miserable girl. I have to be proper. Prunes and prisons are my doom. And I have to just make up my mind. I I just have to deal with it, which is not where Joe began this book. I think that points to kind of the things that Lou Alcott had to do to feel comfortable and at ease in the world and kind of just make peace with the reality of really wanting to be a boy and feeling like a man's soul in a woman's body, but feeling also that there was no real way to rectify that, which is very sad. <laughs> it is. And then I, I keep going back to the title of the second part yeah. in the UK with Good Wives, because that feels just like it's closing the open yeah. library if it's just mm-hmm. sealing it. Do you know how she felt about that title? So I know that it wasn't up to her. The title was not okay. up to her. I, there's a lot in the archive about how much she didn't want to write. She didn't want to write this book at all. She really didn't want to write the sequel and marry everybody off. She really resented the young girls who wrote her fan mail and like, who's going to marry who? Is Joe going to marry Lori? It was important to her that Joe and Lori not get married. And she devised the character of Professor Bear in part to just piss off that young reader. (laughs) She was very forthright about it. She's like, I can't wait to get all this angry mail. (laughs) She, yeah, she said, Joe should have remained a literary spinster. That was her vision for Joe, which was the path that she herself had taken, right? But it's notable, even within that, there are moments in the archive where Alcott describes herself as taking on male roles as she ages. Her sister Anna's husband dies, and Anna has two surviving children. And Alcott writes in her journal, I must be a father to these children. Later on, she says, I'm Papa to the boys, still talking about her nephews. So even as she was a literary spinster, I think there was definitely an understanding on her part of, yeah, I'm a literary spinster and I'm also father and Papa to the boys. (laughs) This is going to kind of allow me to take on a male role in the family in a way that maybe I couldn't if I was married, which I find obviously very interesting. (laughs) Absolutely. And I appreciate her, what you're saying about her not wanting to see Joe get married to Laurie. Don't ruin that friendship. That friendship serves another function entirely. That is so important. So perhaps they are a queer fam. We can just let them be that. Yeah. I would, again, I have not read Little Men or Joe's Boys. At this point, I'm saving them for the podcast, but I have read excerpts. And one excerpt I read portrayed Joe is the principal of the Plumfield School that she establishes mm-hmm. in Aunt March's home. And Laurie sets up Lawrence College right next to it. So you can have your whole education right there, right? And they basically live on this giant campus as like a commune, all of their families together, all of their kids. And Joe and Lori are in middle age with children of their own, still being best friends and putting on plays together. (laughs) That was really her vision, was this lifelong comradeship that Alcott could have with another man that wouldn't be sexual or romantic. That's what I see in in later relationships with Lori anyway. I think it's difficult to read the book as it goes on because Joe is pulling further and further away from what we know Lou wanted for her. She's starting to like internalize it and say, no, I, I can't. I have to be a miserable girl. And that's, I think that's only going to get more and more tough as the book goes on. We get into good wives territory. 
unfortunately. Yeah, that seems very true. But then that later, that later life seems a bit closer. It's funny. I remember as a kid when reading Little Men, it did seem a little bit like what she would, how she was mentoring the boys or teaching the boys with a little bit of wish fulfillment for herself. Oh, yeah. Like, you can do this. You can go do that. You can have this life. You can have this life that isn't as miserable for all. You can go explore all these things. And I suppose it resonated with me so strongly as a kid because I had a lot of sisters. And I was acutely aware that they were super happy about things that I just was not super happy about, that they felt at home in that. And Joe is a character where you can find someone not feeling at home in the world to which she has been assigned. Yeah. I mean, as much as I would like to read the fan fiction where Lori says, let's run away to Washington and Joe goes, you know what? Yeah. <laughs> I wouldn't love but to. But then they have to do it as two gay men. That's fine. But she has to be allowed to go as the two of them going as two boys. Yeah. And actually, if anyone is interested in this possibility, there is an Alcott short story that is public domain and available on the internet called Enigmas, which is narrated by a man who goes to these stories never make sense. He, he kind of just goes to spy on this other guy for a while. And this other guy, he's like, he's so girlish. He's alluring to me. He is, his figure is so slender and his face is so smooth. And then this other guy like has a wife and the new guy is like, he and his wife are so happy together. Why am I jealous? <laughs> and in the end, <laughs> I mean, do you want to guess how this is resolved, Alex? I uh, do tell, please. I want to read this story. I'll tell you that. I mean, I'm gonna give the I'm gonna give away the ending here, but it's revealed that I hope I'm remembering all the specifics. But of course, the mysterious, smooth-faced, slender-figured, compelling man to whom this our narrator man is so compelled is a woman in disguise, <laughs> right? <laughs> and is married to a cousin. This is a cousin. They're pretending to be married. It was <laughs> they just had to pretend to be married for a while for like safety reason <laughs> but everything worked out okay and now they can the guy can take off his disguise and they don't have to pretend to be married anymore it's like yeah there's something else going on there <laughs> but that's a really fun one because it's like the first three quarters of that story just this guy being like why am i so attracted to this <laughs> i don't know Sorry, why why are you attracted why yeah. i feel like we're gesturing toward wanting the novel that Lou might have written now in response yeah. to things to pick these up. Yeah. And honestly, we know that Little Women was not her favorite thing that she ever wrote. There was sort of an extent to which all of her writing was economic, initially because she was in such dire poverty and then because she felt a real need to provide for her sick mother. But she really kind of got to free herself and go nuts with these short suspense and horror stories. And I really encourage you to delve into them because some of them, as you can see, <laughs> got quite clear. <laughs> So that, that's a treat. We might do a scrap bag episode on that story specifically. Please do. I can't wait to hear it. That sounds great. All right. So Alex, I don't want to keep you here for too much longer. So it's been so lovely chatting with you. Where can people find you? Where can they buy your book? You can buy the Back to the Body pretty much in all the places. And soon, hopefully, I'll know in January, hopefully soon you will be able to also watch it on HBO, which would be cool. <gasps> so that's been a weird process. That's been a very weird and wonderful Process, That's exciting. Talk about different interpretations of queer elements and figuring out yeah. what should be changed and what shouldn't and to push it further in ways. And so that's been a great, I'm just such a fan of the team. So that hopefully we'll know more about soon. And then my works also, I have two very trans essays out in Best American Essays 2022 and 2020. And then both and neither 2024 or 2025. 
We don't have a year settled on it yet. Probably because I still have to turn the book in. It's due next summer. (laughs) But that is going to be quite queer and hopefully available everywhere. Well, I am thrilled to read it. I mean, I'm already opening up my 2024, 2025 calendar and making a note. Fantastic. As always, I'm your host, Peyton Thomas. You can find me online at peytonthomas.ca and you can buy my book, Both Sides Now, wherever fine books are sold. If you enjoy the podcast, please leave a rating and a review. You've been very generous with the ratings and the reviews so far, but there is that one turf in the UK. So if you're in the UK, especially, (laughs) help us fight back. That's all I have to say. Again, thank you so much for listening and see you next week. (laughs) 